Proverbs 31, we'll begin reading verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeketh wool and flax, and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant's ship, she bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night, and giveth meat to her household, and a portion to her maidens. She considereth a field, and buyeth it, and with the fruit of her hands she planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with strength, and strengtheneth her arms. Let's pray. Father, help us to really hear these words this morning. Help us to understand your mind and your heart. Father, what a privilege it is to stand here and teach this book. Father, I pray this would be your work this morning. Lord, I can only be a conduit. But I I pray, Lord, you take truth and minister to our souls today. In Jesus' name, amen. I probably don't have to tell you that uh, this chapter constitutes uh, one of the most, if not the most, uh, comprehensive portrait of godly womanhood to be found anywhere in the scriptures, at least in one uh, single location. I think it's fitting that this book of practical wisdom, which has said so much about so many different walks of life and to so many categories of people, uh, which contains so much instruction regarding the wrong kind of woman. Those of you that are familiar with the book of Proverbs know it talks about the clamorous seductress, the woman wearing the attire of a harlot, she that is loud and stubborn, whose feet, uh, feet abide not at home, whose contentions are like the continual drip of a leaky roof. Uh, How wonderful that this book would end with this lofty description of the kind of woman that's praiseworthy from heaven's perspective. Now, I do hope this morning we can uh, view these words with a fresh perspective. I don't mean forget everything you've ever heard about this. That's not possible. But I know the tendency to almost despise passages because they're so familiar. You've heard dozens of sermons, read devotionals, heard all kinds of Mother's Day messages probably uh, on the same text. Uh, So I'm hoping we can still have ears to hear because as we all would say, at least in our creed, the Word of God is infinitely deep. There's always uh, more treasures to mine out of the the mine. And I would guess, I'll make an educated guess that several of you ladies have read Proverbs 31 looking for encouragement, and if you're honest, you've come away discouraged at times. Uh, You've looked through it and you thought it was impossible for you to be anything like this woman in any practical sense. I mean, you're thinking now, our family doesn't have money for me to just go decide to buy a field while my husband's at work. I mean, does this woman ever sleep? I can't function when I stay up till midnight and wake up at four. And uh, newsflash, I don't have time to plant a vineyard. I don't have time to start a textile business on the side. And sometimes I think this passage has been taught as though those are the main things emphasized. That's not the intent of the passage. It's vital to understand the context of who's speaking and who's being spoken to and to take the principles out of that and make proper application to where you're at. That's where the help in this passage is really found. First, I want to point out this description. By the way, chapter 31 is one continuous thought beginning with the first verses. We'll talk about those in a minute. But this description of of this godly woman is the advice of a mother to her son which was going to someday grow up to be king. 
So it's fitting, first of all, that the portrait she paints is of a woman in a household who has vast financial means. Apparently for her, uh, there was no stretch to just go buy a field. But the idea is, she's wise with finances. I'll say more about that in a minute. She's buying something tangible, practical, useful, not throwing away money down holes of vanity. In fact, if you think about it, uh, for a king to be counseled to find a wife who knows how to serve would have been a revolutionary concept. A mother telling her son who would be king, you need to find a wife who knows how to make cloth. You need to find a wife who knows how to cook. You mean I don't need a wife that's just going to sit in the palace and hash out orders? Exactly. That's what she's saying. Uh, this woman in this passage had servants. When it talks about her maidens, it's talking about maidservants. None of you that I know of possess any servants. If you do, we'll discuss that later. Okay? So, my point is, in exact comparison, you've got to take the principles behind it. When she goes to plant a vineyard, she has a bunch of trained help always available at her beck and call. You do not. That's okay. I think it's also important to point out this description is not a day in the life of a virtuous woman. Okay, this is not, she stays up late, and then she gets up early, and then she sends some uh, material to another shore, and then she just buys a field over her lunch break, and then she... These are characteristics that go over time. If I took any one of you ladies that are walking with the Lord, and I listed the characteristics, you might find there's a lot of things listed that somebody reading that would say, I can't do all that. The idea is not this is one 24-hour day. The idea is this woman arises to the challenges and ministry opportunities as they come. She's not trying to wean herself off of sleep and fill the schedule and live off of espresso beans just for the sake of it. That's not what this is teaching. Third, technically, uh, this woman is hypothetical. Now here's what I mean. Uh, there's no doubt been many jewels like this that have walked the earth. Uh, but this king's mother's not saying, go marry Sally Sue, this is what she's like. She's saying, let me paint an ideal picture of godly womanhood for you to look for. So technically speaking, we're talking about a picture being painted here, not one specific flesh and blood person who actually lived. I think there's been many uh, women like this. It's a broad description of the type of characteristics to look for in a wife and the type of characteristics that any wife or future wife should strive to emulate. And let me point out also, this is not 100% success or 100% failure. Isn't our tendency to read all the passages like this in the Scriptures and forget God's intent isn't to make you crumple in defeat? It's to make you stand up and possess. It's kind of like, you ever read the life of Daniel or Joseph? There's nothing negative mentioned about them. Now, is that intended to make you feel horrible? Or is it intended to show you what God can do? You see, that's the difference. As you grow in sanctification, nearness to God, there's going to be improvement in each of these areas mentioned. I want to give my usual disclaimer before this kind of a message. I said something similar last Father's Day before I singed the eyebrows of the men. Some of you may remember that. My calling is to preach the whole counsel of God. That includes passages that emphasize one group in the larger group. There's a lot of passages like that. Now that's a necessary thing. But there's a danger with it. Let me explain what I mean. The danger is those that feel like they're not being addressed are sitting here thinking, I hope so-and-so is listening. The group that is being addressed is sitting there thinking, well, well, what about them? Can I plead with all of us just to make honest application of the Scriptures to ourselves? Let me say something to you children here. Be very careful in how you view your mother. 
I guarantee you, a lot of the things you think you understand, and a lot of your theories are going to be dashed to pieces on the anvil of real life experience. This sword's coming your way in due time. And to the husbands, I may say some things this morning that point out some of your wife's struggles. Don't you dare take what I'm saying and beat her over the head with them. I like to remind men often, husband is a gardening term. A husbandman, scripturally, is somebody who cultivates flowers. Now, I drive down a road and I see a rose bush, withered and wilted. My first question is not what's wrong with the rose bush. My first question is what's wrong with the gardener. So, as the Lord reveals to you things your wife needs to work on, your first question should be, how am I aiding her to fail by not manning my post and walking with God myself? Because after all, you are the leader of the home. The buck does stop with you. But of course, this passage largely speaks to the women. Now with that in mind, I want to point out, there's actually, it's actually not, you often hear oh, the Proverbs 31 woman. There's actually not one, there are two Proverbs 31 women. There's two women mentioned here in this passage. There's this hypothetical description given in verses 10 to 31. But that description is given by a real flesh and blood woman who was the mother of this King Lemuel. Now maybe you read that and you say, who in the world is King Lemuel? If you've ever read on this topic, by the way, you're probably aware there's a lot of theories uh, that have been postulated to answer that question. I'm not going to take the time to belabor the point. I'm just going to touch on it because I do think it's important. There is no King Lemuel in Jewish history, Judah or Israel. Okay, so that leaves us with one of two conclusions. Either this is talking about a pagan neighboring king, which I personally patently reject, or it's a nickname given to one of the real kings of Israel or Judah, which I think is definitely the case. A Jewish tradition, which, uh, by the way, is not authoritative, but it's often helpful. And the bulk of conservative, reputable Bible commentators for centuries have identified Lemuel with Solomon himself. Remember the book of Ecclesiastes talks about the preacher, Kohelet, the preacher. Good evidence that's Solomon there also. Uh, although it doesn't expressly call him that, but it's fairly obvious uh, that that's the description that fits him. So Solomon was a guy that was fond of being called by different nicknames. Uh, Solomon wrote all the Proverbs except chapter 30, and some of them were copied out. If you read Proverbs 25, verse 1, they were copied out in the days of Hezekiah. Some of them were written later on. But they were Solomon's words that were finally codified and put into print. It's easily verified that Solomon had a very high respect for his mother. The whole kingdom knew she had this kind of platform of influence even after he became king. You remember, here comes brother Adonijah. Comes to Solomon's mommy and says, Hey, will you go to Solomon and ask him to give me Abishag the Shunammite to wife? You remember that? Now, Solomon wasn't a big fan of that proposition, by the way. But there's a reason he went to her because everybody knew... He usually would grant her requests. Of course, what I'm saying is that these words were largely penned and given by none other than Bathsheba. The name Lemuel means belonging to the Lord. Even that sheds some light on this conversation. You remember just before Solomon's conception, it had been a rather eventful year for Bathsheba. There was that fateful night when she was uh, summoned into an adulterous affair at the king's palace. Then after that, there was the, the guilt, the shame, the filthiness of spirit that followed that act. Then there's the realization that she's with child. A whole new wave of guilt comes. She sends word to the king that I'm with child. And of course, David tries frantically to cover his tracks. When that doesn't work, Bathsheba gets the news. Your husband is 
been killed in battle. She gets a black letter before they existed. And then, of course, there's a rumor circulating that King David had something to do with this. And so she's mourning for her husband, grieving over the sin that had taken place, and she gets done mourning for her husband, and now she's taken to be the wife of the murderer of her husband. Her year's not over yet. Then this child's born. Like any mother, she's going to have high hopes. The child's inflicted with illness. After several days, the child dies. So Bathsheba's in mourning now for the second time in a year period over a very close loved one still dealing with the stain of the sin. And that's when the words in 2 Samuel 12, 24, and 25 are penned. David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went in unto her and lay with her and she bare a son. And he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet and he called his name Jedidiah. Which means beloved of the Lord. Which is very similar to Lemuel belonging to the Lord. So it appears that Bathsheba had taken this name given by Nathan the prophet and and used it as a lifelong nickname for her son Solomon. I think that's the backdrop of this title, King Lemuel, King Belonging to the Lord. It was a reminder that God had placed him there and God had great expectations for him. Now for one thing, I'll point out, a mother does not have to have a squeaky clean past in order to give wise and godly counsel for the future. David had acted abominably. No question, he was 100% guilty. But it was Bathsheba's lack of discretion and modesty that didn't help the situation. And she very likely carried a load of guilt to her grave over the immoral, shameful circumstance that even led to her being the mother of Solomon in the first place. Imagine the conversation. Mommy, tell me how you met Daddy for the first time. Um, can we change the subject now? But rather than hide in a hole, she did her utmost to keep her son away from the same pitfalls, even though he would one day be king. Maybe it was when he was older. Maybe it was when those passions started to arise that her counsel took on more urgency. And then the day came where the crown is finally placed on his head. Like any mother, there would have been mixed feelings there. For lack of a better term to describe it, there would have been being proud or pleased with her son. Look what God's done. The day's finally here. Filled with joy and expectancy, but also there would have been the concern about the thousands of dangers inherent in absolute power. Fabulous wealth. Beautiful women. And of course, Solomon was the product of two exceptionally attractive parents. So here's King Solomon, the dashing, powerful, wealthy heartthrob of most of the young ladies in the kingdom. And keep in mind, those who paid attention to prophecy knew full well the Messiah was going to be born through Judah and through the lineage of David. Most Jewish young ladies, their dream was to bear the Messiah. So Solomon literally had his choice among the ladies of the kingdom. To the man, he was the sovereign ruler to be feared and instantly obeyed on penalty of instant beheading. But to Bathsheba, under the crown, beneath the royal robe, he was still her boy. And that was never going to change. Now, note at the beginning in those first verses the substance of her counsel. In verse 3, she says, Give not thy strength unto women. Now, we'll talk more about that word in a minute. But that word strength is the same word as the word virtuous in verse 10. Same root word, strength. Give not thy strength unto women. So, she's telling him the wrong women will destroy you and sap your spiritual strength. Don't give your virtue, don't give your convictions unto women. This has been the downfall of many a king and the Achilles heel of ruling men throughout history. You remember John the Baptist lost his head because King Herod gave his strength unto women. 
Verses 4 to 6, she tells him, stay away from alcohol. She tells him it will pervert your judgment. And listen, you need all the sober-mindedness you can get to sit on that throne. The last thing you need is to be off in la-la land frying your brain cells. Verses 8 and 9, she counsels him to stand up for those wrongfully oppressed, to judge on the basis of righteousness, not convenience or respective persons, to have mercy on the poor, to not treat them as less important than him. And then, of course, we get to verses 10 through 31, a description of this virtuous woman. Once again, I want to point out these principles are applicable not just in marriage. These principles can be taken and applied whether you live in a castle or a shack, whether you're married or not. The principles themselves. You see, the virtue, the marriage here was merely the forum for her virtue to be displayed, but the virtue was there nonetheless. Somebody doesn't have to be married to display these qualities. Okay, the the bounds are a little bit bigger than that. A few observations, though, generally of the whole passage. The fact that so much is said to this future king about this highlights the huge importance of godly womanhood in every sphere of society. We've heard it so much we're bored to tears that behind every great man is a... Is it true? Most of the time, that is true. There's something to that that even the world recognizes. And secondly, her virtue is displayed and described by way of her actions. You see, it's by her fruit she is known. There's no such thing as virtue merely hiding in a closet. It's not fits and bursts. It's the steady plodding of everyday life where this is shown. I think it's interesting that very little is said about her husband. It's not if her husband did this or that, then she would choose to be virtuous. Do you think it was easy living in those days when women were largely treated as property? I don't think so. Imagine expecting to submit and love a husband when wife number two and three and four shows up with their suitcases at the door. I'm not endorsing that. That was horrible. Many of these Old Testament women, that was their circumstance at the time. We see, this woman made the determination that she was going to fulfill her God-given role regardless for the Lord's sake. Which, by the way, is always the right motivation. We need to check ourselves as parents. Am I raising my children merely so they'll turn out a certain way? Or am I raising my children this way because of the Lord's sake? Husbands, are you treating your wife a certain way so that she'll behave a certain way? Or are you doing it for the Lord's sake? Same question to wives. You see, here's the deal. Anytime, this is a huge principle in the Christian life. Anytime other people's actions become the barometer for your obedience to God, your priorities are seriously misplaced. Do you understand what I'm saying? If your obedience to the Lord is dependent upon what somebody else is doing, like it or not, you've made an idol out of that somebody else. It's our tendency to do that with people, with things. Now, we don't have time for a word-for-word -word exposition here, obviously, but I'll just give a panorama of the rest of the chapter. What does this virtuous woman look like? Notice in verse 10, number 1, she is valuable. You know, the section begins with an interesting question. Who can find a virtuous woman? Now, I mentioned the word virtuous. It actually comes from a noun which means strength or ability. It could be read, who can find a woman of strength? But obviously the strength spoken of is strength of moral character, strength of godliness. And it's posed as a question to highlight the fact that such a woman is a rare find on the earth. And let me tell you again, it's only heaven's perspective that ultimately matters. 
Do I even need to state that the kind of woman this society puts on a pedestal is the exact opposite of what's described here? I mean, you, you go in our culture and say, uh, would you give me some examples of a woman of strength, please? It's going to be talk show hosts. It's going to be politicians. It's going to be CEOs of businesses. It's going to be that type of example. But the Bible defines a woman of strength as one who's living for one singular audience and has turned her back on the opinions of a God-hating society and she's content to be labeled all sorts of things so long as she has God's smile at the last. That is strength. It's no strength to walk down the velvet carpet and have the paparazzi snapping photos of you and oogling over your carnal body when you don't have the character to beat your way out of a wet paper bag. That's not strength. That's weakness. That's to be a slave to culture. The woman of strength is willing to stand in the stream and to be counterculture in obedience to the Word of God. Also, this question suggests unless God brings this kind of woman into Solomon's life, he's not going to find her. You don't just put an ad on Craigslist. To this world, she's marginalized. Her work is demeaned and mocked. The progressive feminists label her a Neanderthal. She'll never be invited as a guest on the Oprah Winfrey show, but who really cares? The reality is her value is far above rubies. I have a lot of rocks in my yard. I've spent time digging a lot of them up recently. And one thing I noticed is God made most rocks very common and unimpressive. But what is it about these certain ones that we call gemstones? Well, it's really two things. One is beauty. And the other is rarity. The fact she's above rubies means she cannot be bought with money. You can buy a housekeeper. Nowadays, you can actually get a catalog or order a bride online from overseas. But a woman that fears and loves the living God and is devoted to serving and obeying Him and that fulfills her role is without price. Listen, you want to talk about an endangered species on the earth? It's not some polka-dotted squirrel in Zimbabwe. It's godly women. That's an endangered species. And godly men are too. Now you young men, you want to find a wife like this? You work at becoming a husband ready for a wife like this. A wife like this doesn't want to marry any average Joe who rolls out of a religious dumpster. She wants somebody with spiritual convictions and backbone, somebody who knows where he's going and is willing to show it. Okay, number two, verse 11 and 12. The heart of her husband doth safely trust her. Characteristic number two, this virtuous woman, she is trustworthy. Now think about this. Uh, you say between uh, fellow believers or Christian people, I mean, there's people in here, I would say, I would trust them with my wallet and keys to my house. What are you really saying? Are you saying I'm convinced this person doesn't have a sinful nature? I hope you're not saying that. Are you saying that I don't think this person is capable of sin? No, you're not saying that. Here's what you're saying. You're saying I'm sufficiently convinced of this person's fear of God, so much so that I know that is going to govern their behavior and therefore I trust them. That is the basis of real trust among human beings. That's why Christian people oftentimes trust each other. I mean, you, you ever met someone, you've, you don't even know them, you're in another country, you're across, uh, you're across the state and you, you, you meet this real believer and instantly you would trust them with your possessions. Because you sense there's this principle abiding within where God is on the throne. And He's going to regulate their activity because they're in subjection to Him. So, uh, this virtuous woman has a husband who's sufficiently convinced of the reality of her own walk with Jehovah. And what's the result? In his very heart, he trusts her. And it says safely, that means his trust isn't misplaced or disappointed. Verse 11 says, He shall have no need of spoil. What's the principle there? 
She makes do with what her husband provides. Whether that's a lot or a little. Here's the thought. She's not placing undue pressure on him through foolish spending or complaining or coveting more. She's not making him feel forced to spend an inordinate amount of time on the job or make him tempted to take steps that weaken his own spiritual life in order to keep her financially happy. He doesn't feel like he always has to have more, 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 more. You see, a wise woman can make a little go a long way when necessary. But a foolish woman can waste even a very large income and still complain for more. In verse 16, where she considers a field and buys it, the principle, her spending is well thought out. It's purposeful. It's not wasteful. This vineyard wasn't some vain luxury. You know what it meant? It meant one word, four-letter word starting with a W. It meant work. She buys the field. She helps plant the vineyard. And what did that mean? It meant fresh fruits and income for the home. It was a well-thought-out and prudent use of money. Number 12, she will do him good and not evil. And once again, God defines that for us. She takes her role as a helpmeet with great seriousness. She's going to help facilitate his spiritual good. She's going to encourage and support and submit because of her fear for the Lord. And look at verse 12, for how long... She will do good and not evil. Verse 12 at the end. How long? All the days of her life. In other words, this type of woman is in it for the long haul. She's not going to let her heart be set on someone or something else. She takes the words in sickness and health and joy and sorrow and plenty and in want till death do us part seriously. Princess, there's not a marriage in this room that has never had a struggle. But what's the foundational issue all the time? One or both parties are not submitted to what the Lord said. That is the root problem all the time. We're very good at dancing around that. But in our conflicts, if we would go there, in a lot of forums, with friends, with acquaintances, with fellow believers, it usually comes back there. Will I adjust my life to the Word of God? Yes or no? Get both people in a conflict to say yes. Amazing things are going to happen. God is great. So, uh, here she doesn't merely do him good when she feels like it. She's going to recognize the sovereign hand of God placing her here. And look at verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates. Now, it's sort of like this is just thrown in. Now, what's the deal? Let me tell you what it's not saying. It's not saying your husband gets to hang out and sit there with the elders eating cheese sticks, getting all the recognition while she stays home and labors. You know why that verse is there? Here's what it's saying. Her husband is made a better man. Because of her virtue as a woman. He is better able to go slay the proverbial dragon outside the walls of the home because she's willing to be where God has placed her. To lift him up. You can contrast that in multiple passages with the foolish woman, conversely. Her husband cannot trust her safely. He cannot trust her not to give her heart to another man. He cannot trust her to spend money wisely. He can't trust her to keep secrets. He can't trust her to confess and deal with sin before the Lord. And he can't trust her to be doing what she should be doing when nobody else is watching. I see the two sides of this. That brings us to number three, beginning in verse 13. She is diligent. Notice verse 13. It says, She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly. So her, her labor is willing. That means she works because she wants to, because of an abiding principle of fearing God within. 
She's self-motivated, or maybe I should say God-motivated. She doesn't need someone standing over her telling her to do something. She's devoted to this labor of love. And I want to highlight again, this is spoken of a woman that had servants and lots of money. This is actually being complimented in a home where she could have sat there and done nothing and told everybody else to do it. Have you ever honestly thought, come on now, oh, to have a few servants? How many of you have ever thought that? When I was digging trees the other day, I thought that. I had a few, I guess, right here, but I, I got to feed them. We all are tempted to that thought, but you see, the labor is important regardless of the financial status. Her labor is ongoing. You know, 13 of these 22 verses describe some kind of work she's doing. She's the very opposite of the sluggard described earlier in Proverbs. Verse 18 says, Her candle goeth not out by night. Now that doesn't mean she never sleeps. But it means she does things when they need to be done. She's not a procrastinator. Verse 27, She eateth not the bread of idleness. You remember the discussion? In 1 Timothy 5, Paul told Timothy to refuse certain young widows. You remember that? Now here's the reason he gave. He said they learned to be idle, wandering from house to house. Not only idle, but tattlers also in busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. So he told Timothy it, to keep you from facilitating that sort of vanity. Don't put them on the church roll of support when they're that young. It's going to cause trouble. And so, this virtuous woman is the opposite of that. The woman of strength knows the hard work it takes to manage a household is not a drudgery, but it's a safety. It doesn't mean it doesn't feel like a drudgery sometimes. But she knows by faith it's a safety to keep her from dishonoring the Lord through useless activity and harmful conversations. We all have heard the devil makes use of idle hands. It doesn't matter what gender, what age you are. That's true. If we have too much of nothing, we were not made to do too much of nothing. Isn't that true? It's when your thoughts get out of hand. It's when your words get out of hand. It's when your actions get out of hand and your passions and your covetousness and everything else. The Lord made us to labor in our respective spheres. Her labor is varied. There's a lot to it. You know, the feminist movement speaks with scorn about the lowly housewife. But in reality, the homemaking woman is skilled in a variety of fields. You think of all the things she is. What a list that would come up with. Uh, the woman here in this passage, she was into textiles, real estate, agriculture, foreign trade. And you say, wow, uh, I'm not there. That's okay. God doesn't want you to be there. That was her specific situation. But here's the idea. She has a, a Philippians 4.13 kind of attitude towards the skills she needs to develop. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now let's go. Isn't it wonderful as you're raising children the new things you have to learn? Here you got a little guy. He wants to know about shuttles. And you don't know anything about shuttles. You better start learning some stuff about shuttles. My kids have taught me a lot on the things they're interested in. It's blessing. It's a blessing to be forced into that. So each woman, by the way, has a skill set that's going to be a little different. Here's where comparisons are a danger. You see another Christian sister somewhere, and she does this and this and this and this. And that. You know, if you want to learn from that and be encouraged by it and challenged by it, fine. But if it's a source of guilt and condemnation, why aren't you just like her? That's not the Lord's voice. All of you are going to have a different skill set based on the different circumstances the Lord places you in. Some of them will overlap, some will not. But in other words, rather than squandering time, she redeems the time. She knows each hour of the day is like an investment in something and she wants it to count. And it takes labor and diligence to do what that says a couple verses ago, to do good to her husband. This cuts both ways. Husbands are told in the New Testament, dwell with your wife according to knowledge. The terminology is like have a college degree about what makes your wife tick. Guess what? That takes effort. It doesn't just happen. The same can be turned around though instead of the wife. 
it takes effort to understand you've been created as a suitable helper, co-laborer with a particular man. It takes effort and emphasis and time to fulfill that role by knowing how to build them up, by knowing how to encourage, by knowing when to speak and when not to speak, by making the effort to be as attractive as possible. Can I just say something bluntly? We'll talk about beauty in a minute. It's a curse to Christianity when people get the idea in their head that it's wrong to look attractive for your spouse. They didn't get that from God. They absolutely did not. Now, if that's all somebody has, that's a different matter. That's unscriptural thinking, though. That's a way of showing love and affection and honor to one another. It says in verse 22, She maketh herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. Again, it doesn't have to be riches, but the idea is doing the best she can with what she has. Placing her husband as a higher priority than family or friends or even their own children. I mean, you married couples, do your children know that your spouse is more important than any one of them? I hope they do know that. That's not wrong, that's scriptural. Children need to be taught, we love you dearly, but listen, if I don't love her or him dearly first, I can't love you the correct way. And you know what? My spouse was here before you, and they're going to be here after you're on to doing things in your own life, so I have to cultivate this. That has to be communicated. That actually gives children a sense of stability to know that. That this relationship is prioritized. A part of her labor is verse 15. She riseth also while it's yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. She knows how to manage the home. She's growing in her ability to tend to the thousands of tasks that are on her shoulders. She knows how to meet deadlines. She knows how to have meals ready. It says in verse 14, she brings food from afar. That doesn't mean you need to import sushi from Japan. You've got to remember, this was in an age where they didn't have grocery stores. The idea was she knew where to get food and even add a little variety to the meals. It's just a practical sense. They didn't go down to a Walmart Supercenter to pick produce off the shelf. They had the means to import it, uh, so they did so. She knows how to keep the home clean and organized, attend to the needs of the children in many other areas. Uh, fourthly, verse 20, she stretcheth out her hand to the poor. Yea, she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. That shows a zeal, a compassion in meeting the needs of others. In other words, she obeys and believes Galatians 6.10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. But see, here's the principle in that, by the way. God is going to provide opportunities if we're willing to look. And it is done according to our means generally. That's time and money. We often talk about budgeting money. But it's also important to budget time. It's important to say no to some things in life. It's important to have our priorities clear that we know which things I can't do that because I'd have to override something more important and I can't do it. It's okay to say no to some things. But it's as we have opportunity, as the Lord presents it, as we have the honest ability, she's going to help. And believers are generally going to take priority in our generosity. That's why it says, especially to them who are of the household of faith. And by the way, let me say this, parents. Don't make the mistake of spiritualizing helping everybody else and secularizing helping your own family. Let me explain what I mean. Do you ever feel like there's some special blessing or some little bit of extra money you would spend to buy another family estate dinner or something? And here you are, a clear conscience, happy before the Lord, thinking you've done a wonderful work. But then it comes to the desire to do the same thing for your own family, and you think, oh, the answer is always we can't afford that. I'm not saying you always can't afford it, but here's what I'm saying. Those people, those children, are ones we've been called to minister to. Mm -hmm. They should be the subject of blessings, special blessings also. Amen. That's okay. I'm amazed how often my flesh rises up and fights me on that one. Mm -hmm. 
And so there's something sometimes I want to do for my children. I'm thinking, oh, that, that, that's... You, you, you. But I'll ask myself, would you do that for someone else with a clear conscience? Absolutely. Then what's your problem? Are they not souls for whom Christ died? Are they not my primary ministry over those outside the home? Yes, they are. Okay, verse 25 to 27. Number five. We are getting close to being done. She is wise. Now, of course, the fountain of her wisdom is found in verse 30. She fears the Lord. It is impossible to be a virtuous woman without Christ and without subjecting yourself to the Word of God. And wisdom is going to be manifested by prioritizing her relationship with the Lord above everything else. You know any Christian person you meet, the single greatest indicator of the direction they are heading is the prioritization of their own walk with God. That's the greatest indicator. If somebody has that one right... They're going to be corrected. They're going to be shaped. They're going to be directed. If somebody has that one wrong, there's no amount of outside coercion and rules that are going to beat them into submission to go the right way. So wisdom is going to be shown at prioritizing a walk with God. Verse 26, it says, She openeth her mouth with wisdom. Her wisdom is manifest in her speech. She thinks before speaking. She's careful with what she shares and with whom she shares it. She's not like the fountain mentioned in the book of James that at one point sends forth sweet and wonderful water and the next sends out mud or salt. She primarily builds up with her tongue rather than tearing down. It says, In her tongue is the principle or the law of kindness. Uh, Verse 27 says, She looketh well to the ways of her household. So her wisdom is manifested in looking well to the ways of her house. It's not just interest in clothing and feeding people. That's important. But what she's interested in is the ways of those in the home. Which way they're going. She instructs her children in the Scriptures and disciplines them accordingly. She's careful about the example she's setting. She's careful to confess sin and deal with it. In verse 25, it says, Strength and honor are her clothing. Her wisdom is manifested in the way she conducts herself publicly. She's clothed with strength and honor. In other words, her chief goal and how she perceived is she wants to shine the light of God into a corrupt and wicked generation. She's going to be clothed with strength, with virtue, with character, with boldness and standing for truth. That's how she wants to be portrayed. Quietly, yes, but portrayed nonetheless. She's clothed with honor. And she wants her externals even where necessary to bring glory to God. And part of that, it's a touchy subject in our culture anymore. But part of that is the mindset. To not dress in such a manner is to shine the spotlight on her body in order to draw the carnal gazes of men that are not her husband. Is that a problem in our culture? It's a big one. That's the opposite of being honorable. That's the opposite of bringing glory to God. I mean, we used to you know, in Alaska, there were a lot of Russian Orthodox women. And of course, they're very wrong in their perception of the gospel. But they always dress very ladylike, real colorful. You could see them from about a mile away, you know, real flashy. The men wore pink and purple too. Okay, not my thing. But what I found interesting, I like to see, you know, sometimes my wife would run to the store for something and I'd sit there and just observe people. And you watch people walk into the grocery store. And it's interesting to watch. It's, it's watch ladies walk in and the reaction of those around them. And a lady like that walks in, and it's like they step aside and clear the way. And even in our sin-sick culture, there's a respect and an honor about the way she's conducting herself ladylike. It's amazing to behold still. Number six, and we'll be done. Amazing promise. Verse 30 A woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be 
praised. It says just before that, favor is deceitful, beauty is vain. Favor, speaking of the outward appearance, graces, personality, it's kind of paralleled with, with beauty. Now there's nothing wrong with a good personality. Nothing wrong with physical beauty. I can promise you, when I was praying for a wife years ago, I did not ask, Lord, please give me a wife who's unattractive to me and has no personality. I never asked him that, I promise. But here's what he's saying. Favor, outward appearance, is deceitful. If that's all that's there, a charming personality, outward graces, ladylike behavior to dress up a corrupted heart, he says it's deceitful. What you think you're getting, you're not getting. What you see may not be what's really there. And he says beauty. Beauty's vain. It's temporary. It's passing away. There better be more to it. Remember a preacher years ago relating a story. He'd been preaching on a college campus somewhere with thousands of these students. and He's preaching the gospel. He gets about 10-15 minutes in and this, this, this crowd of girls comes walking in. They're, they're late. And they come sit kind of down towards the front. And he kind of got the impression that uh, they were real attractive girls, and he got the impression they were prancing down there like showpieces and wanted everyone to know they're fashionably late. And so the course of his message, he said, some of you sitting here in this audience are very, very beautiful. But in 50 years, every single one of you is going to be very, very ugly. There better be something else. It's true. Beauty itself isn't bad. But external beauty alone, not a good thing. So there's one kind of woman that's praiseworthy from heaven's perspective, and it's she that fears the Lord. That kind of woman's not fashioned out of silicone and Botox. She's fashioned because she obeys the Word of God. Her husband... For one, if he has any spiritual sense, is going to recognize and appreciate and give thanks for the rare jewel that has been handed to him. Husbands, if your wife even comes close to reflecting any of these qualities, you ought to thank God daily that he gave a rare jewel to such a wretch like you. I do that often. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I look back to the days of my vanity and who I could have been latched to. Is she perfect? No. Her husband sure isn't. I often remember women are told to are paralleled to the church. Men are compared to Christ. She's a lot closer to being like her ideal than you are to yours. Don't forget that. Her children, it says, will rise up and call her blessed. Now, the term rise up seems to suggest this is something that occurs after they're older. I think parents, we need patience on this one. Children are sinners by nature. They have to be taught how to be thankful. Most of you have found that a 16, 17, 18-year-old kid doesn't necessarily fall down and understand with gratefulness everything you've done as a parent. Maybe to be fair, we should remember our own youth. You see, oftentimes it's with life experience that perspective shifts, doesn't it? Life experience has a way of making you look back with a clearer lens. There are times I look back to my youth, I wish I could fly back 20 years and punch myself in the mouth. I'm serious. It's shameful. The way I treated my own mother sometimes, I'm utterly sh I'm ashamed. But here I sit with many years of marriage under my belt. Six children fulfilling a pastorate starting to go bald, unfortunately. And I'll tell you, I've never appreciated my mother more in my life than now. In fact, I told her last night, I said, Mom, I rise up and call you blessed. I do. But it took time. It took time. Now, friends, here's the deal. Regardless of what any mortal does, 
every single virtuous woman will be praised and told well done in the day when God makes all things manifest. You see, that's the glorious thing about doing them for His sake. He's the guest in every conversation. He's the listener in every room. He knows. And He is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love, even if mortal sinners do. Let me think about it. Did Solomon listen to his mother's counsel? Well, all of us would say Solomon failed cataclysmically in some key areas, wouldn't you? Particularly with women. But was there not also much fruit in Solomon's life? The book of Proverbs, for one. God hasn't forgotten that fruit. He would be unrighteous to do so. Nor has he forgotten that Solomon's mother was a large part of that fruit. I think it's amazing of all women, Bathsheba's words have been recorded here as a monument for all time, despite her son's failures. Here's what that shows. He didn't listen for a while. But the Lord knew it all. The Lord made sure those ended up in the Word of God. Part of that, I think, is to encourage parents. I see your labor of love. And I see that it's praiseworthy when it happens. And I'll never forget it. Say so somebody saying, well, I got, a, I got a lot to work on. I'm a long way from that description. Several of you ladies are wearing a gemstone, a ring finger, your left hand. What has to happen to that gemstone? It doesn't start out looking like that. It has to be found in the rugged mountains usually or from underground. It has to be chopped out of the solid rock. It has to be cut into rough form. It has to be shaped. It has to be polished. And typically they'll place that against a black velvet backdrop so you can see it sparkle in all of its glory when somebody finally shows up to purchase it. All of us are like that. God takes you out of sin's degradation, plucks you out of your stony, stubborn existence, and He begins to cut and polish and shape. And any virtuous woman who walks this earth is placed against that black backdrop of sin you know why? So God gets the glory. This is His workmanship. There's nobody here that is beyond walking with God like this, but you've got to let Him be God. There's really no limit to the things God will do with the willing heart. But there's scarcely opportunity for anything God will do with an unwilling heart. You see, what God has to do in that case is He goes from a ministry of the Holy Spirit through us to a ministry of the Holy Spirit to us. And so we cease being a conduit and like a blocked pipe, all we're doing is backing things up and He's got to fix the problem in our own soul first. But this is God's work if we'll let Him do it. Let's pray. And Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for the miracle of motherhood. Ever since the days of Adam and Eve, the same cycle has continued. And this world population has been filled up by mothers. Thank You for my own mother. I thank You for the mothers here in this room. Lord, they live in a society that is completely against true wisdom. I pray You'd encourage them and give them spiritual backbone and joy to graciously and patiently stand firm in a river of sin running the other direction. I pray You'd strengthen these ladies 
to be able to understand your word and apply it and do it. I pray, Lord, you'd encourage them. The flesh rises up and condemns. The flesh makes excuses. The devil's there raging, showing them their failure daily, constantly. Father, I pray they'd take the promises of your word and kick him in the face. I pray each of them would be able to say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Strengthen these mothers, Lord, to walk with you, to find peace and joy in doing so, and to see some of the fruits of their labors as they walk through this barren land. But help them, Lord, to look beyond this life and to know you see it all. Much of their labor is hidden. It's not given accolades in the evening news. Much of it takes place in secret. But, Lord, there's not a thing you forget. Father, we thank you that we can please you. In Jesus' name, amen.